bit complicated. What does it mean to think biblically? It's pretty important, though. Who are the lost? Second thing. And third, oddly enough, thinking biblically about the lost. So when we say that, what does it mean to think biblically? I'm just jumping in right off the bat. When we say we need to think biblically, that means we need to think like God thinks. And we need to see things the way God sees them. And that means that includes everything. All aspects of your life, um, national things, cultural, personal, you name it. God has made a statement about it. And we need to think like God thinks if we're going to think biblically. It means we ask, what does God say about the meaning of life? Is it um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness? Or is it to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? In God's opinion, which is first? Is it America? Or is it to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us, which is more important? Again, thinking biblically, what does God say about the death penalty, about welfare, about alcohol, about legalizing marijuana, about recreational drug use? What about gambling? What about playing the lottery? What does God say about those things? What does God say about having sex outside of marriage? You know what the culture says. What does God say? If you think biblically, if you're thinking biblically, you agree with what God says. That God is good. You agree that God's word is truth. Not a form of truth. The only truth. If you're thinking biblically, you agree that God's way is the only way. Not a way. The only way. And you live your life accordingly. And in some cases, that might be easy, depending on what we're talking about. But in other ways, you may look at what God says, and even though you're a Christian, you might find yourself saying, boy, I don't know. I, I know God knows what he's doing, but I'm just having a tough time with this. You know, I, I know God's always right, but in my mind, I don't know. And that sort of sentiment, and that happens to people, and that sort of sentiment is exactly why we need to think biblically because we don't know. We don't know everything. As human beings, we tend to think, at least about some things, that, that we've got it all figured out. Some things, obviously, we go, no, I don't have a clue. But some things, we're like, yeah, this makes sense to me and my psyche and my person. And, and if we're honest, again, with some things, anyway, we struggle with the thought, I mean, your, your brain is telling you, this seems right to me. God says it's wrong, but to me it seems right. That is called sin. That's what it is. Whenever we doubt God, God calls that sin. It's the sin of pride, and God hates pride. He's pleased by faith, and the opposite of faith is doubt, and doubt is sin, and God hates it. He doesn't call for blind faith, though. God has never called for blind faith, but he does want him to trust him. The book of Proverbs, we're going to look at this little passage from the book of Proverbs. It says it this way. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make straight your paths. I want to take this little passage apart for just a minute. We didn't have Sunday school this morning, so this will be your Sunday school lesson. You get two for one. First of all, the first part of verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Another way to say that is something we say frequently. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart is to say we walk by faith, not by sight. Thinking biblically is trusting God. And the way we trust God is to believe what he said. And everything God had to say is laid out right in your Bible. It's all there in your Bible. The Apostle Paul said all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? 
so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Peter said that no prophecy of Scripture, nothing you read in Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, here's what happened, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God wrote his Bible through the Holy Spirit and through men. So, we trust in the Lord with all our hearts. We walk by faith, not by sight. The passage in Proverbs goes on to say, do not lean on your own understanding. This is just another way to say trust in the Lord with all your heart. But it also goes back to what I said a minute ago. In our flesh, in our minds, sometimes we think our ways make more sense than God's ways. God says, don't do that. Don't lean on your understanding. There's a wonderful passage in the book of Isaiah that addresses this matter. It's in Isaiah 55, and it says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he's near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. Look at this for a moment. Just, just for a minute. And we're talking about thinking biblically. So with that in mind, let's compare God's message here in Isaiah with what he said in Proverbs. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And I'm going to put the word therefore in there. Therefore, don't lean on your own understanding. He says, your ways are not my ways. Therefore, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And this is where a lot of people leave God behind. This is where a lot of people say, well, the Bible's just outdated. Get with the program. There's just no place for the Bible in our culture today. This is where a lot of people look at God's word and then they look at what the culture says and it's loud. And they say, you know, God, the problem is your thoughts are not our thoughts, and neither are your ways our ways, so there's just really no place for you. Lots of people do that. And in essence, the slave says to his master, the subject says to his king, and the creature says to his creator, little bitty mankind says this to the all-powerful, eternal God. He says it, as if we're both on the same level. God, there's just no room. I'm right and you're wrong. And God says no. And the passage goes on to say, for as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Sometime or another, go to the 38th chapter, not now, the 38th chapter of Job, and just start reading. And, and Job had a, a tough time. God used Job to prove himself. But it was awful what Job went through. And Job starts to get off track. And, and, and when, when God tells Job, because Job's been saying some things out of line, and, and God says, Job, brace yourself. Because I'm going to ask you some questions. And you're going to stand there like a man, and you're going to answer me. And, and I, I'll be honest, that has always appealed to me because that's the kind of bat to the side of the head that works for me. So I read that, I'm like, Any, tell me, Lord, because I'm just thick, you know. So anyway, um, God asked Job things he couldn't possibly know. And he just keeps going and going and going and asking him all these things. And then, as if it's not enough, in chapter 40, it's like round two. And he goes, Job, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you... You will inform me. And right there on the screen, God says, Would you really challenge my justice, Job? Will you declare me guilty to justify yourself? 
Again, Job was going through an excruciatingly intense and painful trial in his life. But when he couldn't make sense of it all with his limited view of things, he sort of intimated that God wasn't fair. And so God calls him on the carpet. And God says, really, Job? Really? You can't see the bigger picture? So you're saying, I'm unfair? Your friends are all saying, well, you must have done something wrong or all this wouldn't be happening. And you say, nah, I'm a good guy. God's the one who's wrong because Job couldn't see beyond his very, 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 very limited scope. And so he blames God. What did I say earlier? To think biblically means that we agree that God is good, that God's word is truth, and God's way is the only way. But getting back to the the little passage from Proverbs, because I'm not done there yet. Chapter 3, verse 6 says this, In all your ways... Acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Verse 5 tells us to trust God with all our hearts. And the first part of verse 6 says we should trust God in all our ways. In other words, again, walk by faith, not by sight. But the second part of the verse says this, and he will make straight your paths. And God speaks to that in in Proverbs in chapter 4. And let me just say this. If, if you're that person who struggles, if you want to trust God, but you're just saying, man, the culture is so loud. The news is so loud and I see it and it's all bombarding me and it kind of makes sense. Listen to this from, from chapter 4 of Proverbs. It starts at verse 11. He says this, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run... You will not stumble, but keep hold of instruction and don't let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Don't enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And then verse 18 says this, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. I love those words. The more you walk with God, the more you're faithful, and the more you study God's word, spend time with God in prayer and studying the word. Bible reading plans are great, but be more concerned about what God is saying than how many verses you got done in a day. Get to know God. Okay? Get to know God. The more you walk, it's saying the more you walk, the easier it gets to trust Him. You'll always battle your flesh, but if it's a real struggle, stay, walk, the, walk with God, stay the course. Do you understand that? I mean, do, do you get that? That is so comforting to me. There's, there's room there to fall down and get back up. It's, it's the morning and the sun's not up and you can't see, but I'm going to walk with God. And maybe you trip, but you get back up and then the light gets brighter and the light gets brighter. The more you stay in the Word, the more you stay with God, the more you commune with God, brighter and brighter. Now I know. Now I see God more and I know Him. And I know Him intimately. And it gets easier and easier. Stay the course. Finish the race and trust God. Talking about thinking biblically. Trust God. But here's the thing. And I'm just going to say what I said in a way. By default, thinking biblically biblically means you need to know what the Bible says, right? You need to know the Bible. You need to know the Word. You have to know what the Bible says because that's God's Word. And if you don't spend time in it, you won't know it. And you will stumble and you will fall and you might walk away. We are bombarded with this message that the Bible is outdated, the Bible's you know, cruel, it's wrong, and it's so loud. And God says, no, think biblically. Think the way I think. 
Live your life the way I want you to live your life. And the blessings will abound. Moving on, we're going to talk about the lost. Who are the lost? First of all, every person in here either was or is lost. And, and I say that in that order for a reason. Because I don't know. In God's eyes, there are basically two types of people in the world. Those who are saved and those who are lost. And there's really no other way to say this. I'll pause for one second. Steve Myers was a very good friend of mine. And the fact that his granddaughter passed away yesterday is really hard. Is really, really hard. Because by all accounts, she did not know the Lord. So don't think for one second that I say these things flippantly. Okay? But there's, if you're saved, you're going to go to heaven. And if you're not saved, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And that's it. That's not pleasant to say, but it's truth. The Gospel of Matthew quotes Jesus as saying this. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king, that's Jesus again, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire that was never prepared for you. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, but man rebelled against God and would not accept the forgiveness of their sins that comes from placing their faith in Jesus. And therefore, these will go away into eternal, eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. In the history of the world, I don't know if any more sobering words have ever been spoken. That is the ultimate outcome of the lost and the saved. Again, I don't know where your heart is this morning. But if you're not in God's flock, if you're not a sheep of Jesus, if you're not a Christian... I just read for you and you saw on the screen what will happen. And what keeps coming to mind for me is a passage from Deuteronomy. When God was talking to the Israelites, he was speaking through Moses about going to the promised land, which was a wonderful, wonderful, fantastic place. But it's a place where the temptation to walk away from God and do your own thing was everywhere. Sound familiar? God said to the people, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments, the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of you. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them I declare to you today that you shall surely perish other gods can look like a lot of different things and we got a lot of gods in this country stick with God the savior of the world the savior of everyone who would repent stay with God it's not the things you do, it's what's in your heart. God wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to desire the same things that he desires. More than that, he wants you to desire that relationship with him. More than anything, he offers you eternal life in heaven and more blessings than you can count and suffering. But eternal life 
Thinking biblically means you do what God says is right. Don't forget that. Now, I want to ask the question, let's just cover some ground here. Why are people lost? People are lost, going to hell. Why? As I said earlier, when the Bible talks about lost people, at the end of the day, those are people who will end up in hell after, we die, after they die. But we should ask that. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? And the answer is their sins were never forgiven. Their sins were never forgiven. And the reason they were never forgiven was because they never came to a place in their life where Jesus Christ became their Lord and their Savior. And the theology of that is, be, is that God never awakened their spirit. So we'll move into a different kind of realm here. God never awakened their spirit. And because of that, lost people, here we go, lost people are spiritually dead. And again, at one point in time, all of us were in that state. But... What does all that mean? You know, spiritually dead, God awakening. What does all that mean? This is the great divide. I'm going to explain what it means to be spiritually dead, but I'm going to take you on a whirlwind tour of Israel and all through Jesus' ministry and um, to a wonderful, beautiful place, the most beautiful place the world has ever seen or never seen. And I'm going to take a number of stops and I'm going to show you a whole lot of things. And you'll be, what is he doing? But just hang on because when it's all over, it'll make sense. Please, Lord, let it make sense. All right. First of all, I'm going to shift gears completely. All right. Jesus did amazing things in his ministry. And we're going to look at one of those amazing things. You need to know that in Jesus' day... Jews didn't travel through Samaria. Is the map there? Okay. I put this map up there. That's pretty good. I, I could hire, you can hire me for your graphic needs if you want. i tell you what. I'm kidding. Um, all right. The deal was this. If you, if you were a Jew, Samaritans were bad. Samaria, you didn't go to Samaria. If you traveled from Galilee to Judea or vice versa, that, that blue line there is the Jordan River, you would cross the Jordan, travel north, and then cross back over to go to, 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 go to Galilee. You did not go through Samaria. Don't go to Samaria. Lots of bad history there. We don't like Samaritans, okay? But in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, it says this. It says... Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria? Why did he have to pass through Samaria? And the answer is, he had to pass through Samaria for one person, for one Samaritan woman. That's why he had to pass through Samaria. The text says this, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he says, give me a drink. And I got to believe that she at that point gave him a real long look. Just like, okay. Because Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And men did not talk to women. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And the, script, and the scripture says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from himself and his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The water he's talking about is the Holy Spirit, okay? Jesus goes on to say, he said to her, go, call your husband 
and come here. And the woman answered him, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-huh. That's the modern translation. (laughs) He says, for you have five husbands. You had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And watch this. Here's this woman that came to get water. This woman who's not the shining example of what you should be. Don't judge a book by its cover. What's going on in her head? What's going on in her heart? She knows she's a disaster. But she has a spiritual question. She says, our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But please, please, please pay attention to this part. Jesus said to her, but the hour is coming. And now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. So that's the first part of my point. So now we leave a rather loose living woman in a disreputable place, sitting in a well in the middle of the day, and we switch to an upstanding, highly religious Pharisee in Jerusalem. He's meeting Jesus at night. Okay? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, which means get this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, I think Jesus got a really long look as if to say, that's not what I, huh, huh, you know. We, look, we know you're a teacher. And he says, you need to be born again. And I, I can see him staring at Jesus and Jesus staring back like, yeah, okay. Anyway, that's my mind, all right. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly. Get this, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What did Jesus say to the woman? He said, God is spirit and therefore God, excuse me, therefore those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What did he say to Nicodemus? He said, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you have to be born again. Why? To answer that, we have to leave Jerusalem and we have to leave Jesus' ministry and take a much longer trip. If you've ever been to Hawaii, it is one of the most beautiful places on the earth. And on the island of Oahu, there's a harbor that at at one time anyway was practically covered. The floor of this harbor was covered with shellfish. And those shellfish produced beautiful pearls. And and there were so many pearls in that area, they called it Pearl Harbor. And it it was stunningly beautiful. And you probably know where I'm going with this. Right there, 
right there in the middle of this beautiful island paradise, one of the worst events in the history of the United States took place when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And in the aftermath, aftermath of that attack, death reigned supreme. And America was pulled into World War II, but at a much, much earlier time, and in a much more beautiful place than Pearl Harbor even, there was a much, 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 much worse event that took place on planet Earth, again in this beautiful paradise. The worst thing that could happen happened. And in the aftermath of that event, death also reigned supreme. But this time, the whole world was at war and has been, has been at war ever since. It was the Garden of Eden, and it was perfect. It was perfect. And God's most precious creation inhabited the garden, and his name was Adam. The Bible says that the Lord took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, let me say this. There are a lot of people who say that the Garden of Eden wasn't real and that Adam and Eve weren't real. Strange thing is, Jesus, who was very real, believed that Adam and Eve were real and believed that the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden was real. Genesis is not a book of mythology. These are actual things that happen. Think biblically, right? In any case, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan and they listened to his lies and they doubted God. What did it say in the Proverbs? What did it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Why is it important to think biblically? For that very reason. The text says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she drew her own conclusions. She disregarded everything that God had said. She relied on what she decided was true. And she never considered, she never considered that there might be more going on than she could see in her extremely limited view of things. So she took of it and ate the fruit. And she also gave some to her dim-witted husband who was with her, and he ate. And that was sin. And that's when sin entered the world. And so did death. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. And men and women have been hiding themselves and their sin from God ever since. But here's a one, this is one of the most heartbreaking and heartwarming and beautiful and hopeful and profound things you will ever read. But the Lord God, who had commanded Adam, eat, Adam not to eat of that tree and who said if he did, he would surely die, he did not destroy Adam and Eve on the spot. Instead, he called to the man and he said, where are you? Adam, where are you? We're one, Adam. We're, we have this fellowship. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man sinned again because he shifted the blame. He said, don't blame me. The woman, listen to this, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and then I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul talked about this, and he said, sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Elsewhere in Romans, he said, the wages of sin is death. He said, because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that one man, and that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. God is our creator. And God is our, God is our source of life. God is our source of life. The Bible says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But God said this to the prophet Isaiah. Indeed, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities, that's your sin, but your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God. And your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. It's the great divide. So thinking biblically about the lost, who are they? Who are the lost and why are they lost? Lost people are people who are spiritually dead. Again, thinking biblically about the lost, lost people are people who are spiritually dead. Jesus told the woman at the well that God is spirit, that he can, he can only be worshipped through spirit. And because of Adam's sin, every human being who is born into this world is born spiritually dead. You can only worship God in spirit, but we're born in this world spiritually dead, which is why he told Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus, that he had to be born again spiritually. Spiritually. He said, if you're not, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The question of the day, though, is how do we think biblically about the lost? So let's move on to that. But keep that in mind, please, today. You were born body, soul, and spirit. Your body's obviously alive. Your soul, your thoughts, your emotions, who you are is obviously alive. But you were born, your spirit was basically was stillborn, was, was born dead. And you cannot commune with God. You cannot worship God. You cannot have a relationship with God in your flesh, in your soul. You have, you have to have a spirit. And your spirit is dead. That's the crux of the issue, okay? Please remember that. That's why you have to be born again spiritually. All right, moving on, thinking biblically about the lost. What does it mean to think biblically? It means to think like God thinks, right? And to see the things the way God sees them. We've established that. Okay, with that in mind, how does God feel about the lost? Here are just a few examples God says this in Psalm 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. And the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The NIV, in Psalm 11, the NIV Bible, which we use the English Standard Version, but it does a good job. In Psalm 11, it says this, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked... Those who love violence, he hates with a passion. He hates with a passion. What else? God hates haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that devises wicked plans. He hates feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And God hates, God despises, hates one who sows discord among brothers. Like I said, that's just a few examples. But before we go any further, I want to ask and then answer some important questions about the lost. And it's just something that we need to see before we move ahead. The first questions are, why do lost people do these things that we just read about? And why do they sin against God? And there, there's a number of answers to those questions, but the main answer to both of those things is because it's in their very nature to do those things. We are born sinful. We are born as sinners. It's in our nature to sin. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You're a sinner because you, you sin because you're a sinner, okay? But the next question is even more important because it gives us a starting point for our main goal, 
which is thinking biblically about the lost. And the question is, why do lost people reject God's forgiveness? Why do they do that? And the first part of the answer is something that we talked about earlier, just a minute ago. The answer is because they're spiritually dead. They reject it because they're spiritually dead. But the implications of being spiritually dead are what matters to us this morning. Because what does it lead to? It's not just that you're dead. What does it lead to? What are the results of spiritual death? And I'm going to use an analogy to start off with. If you put those up there. Okay. Raise your hand if you don't see a number in the left circle. One, two. Okay. Raise your hand if you don't see a number in the right circle. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. I see a bunch of dots. You know why? Because I'm colorblind. Green and whatever, some other color. I don't know. All I know is I go to Kohl's and I find women who look like housewives and have husbands who will be compassionate to me. And I go, are these pants brown? No, sir. Those are gray. Thank you. Because I I don't see anything up there. In theory, there's a five. Is there a five up there? And like 74? Whatever. I don't care. (laughs) I can't see it. What do I care? Hey, all you, everybody who raised your hand, we're going to start our own club, and no one else can play in our reindeer games, and we're going to have a fun time seeing dots, okay? All right. I, I can't see that. I see nothing, okay? I, I'm colorblind. On a much, 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 much more serious note, spiritual death results in spiritual blindness. Why do people sin against God? Why do they reject his forgiveness? Why all these things? And, and I'll tell you what, rather than give you a lot of answers for me, I, I just got a verse here, a couple of verses. I'm just going to mention this. This is from 2 Corinthians. It says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We got to keep that in mind. They can't see. They have been blinded by a force they can't see and they can't beat. And God knows that. Thinking biblically about the lost, okay? If we know that God is good. If God is good and if God's word is truth and if God's way is the only way and if we're going to see things the way God sees things and if we're going to think the way God thinks then we need to live our lives with God's attitude toward the lost who can't see anything. And that is best summed up in this verse here. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save those blind people who can't see anything. To save his enemies. To save these people who sin against him and want nothing to do with him. Earlier we looked at the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And remember the scripture said Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But I want you to see something that I think was going on at that point. Don't let the Bible be this, this book that you read and it's not real because it's very real. This is my thought. I've had this in my spirit for years. The, a woman came, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Okay. He went all the way into Samaria for this moment. Jesus did. Jesus, who condescended to become a man to save sinners. Okay? He's a sinner. He's a, 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 not a sinner. He's a human being just like us. He went into the Samaria for this very moment because this woman was going to come to draw water. The disciples were gone. They went to buy lunch or something. Here she comes. Here she comes. And his heart and my spirit and my world and my thinking, his heart is thumping because this is her. This is her. And he's been, 
he's been looking, waiting for this moment. And she's been looking for more than this empty, sinful life that she's been living for so long. And he knows that. And he tells her, he's going to let her know there's so much more than what you've been doing. And he tells her that. And she believes. And new believers are often God's best evangelists. So the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and she told everybody. And in my mind, Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, smiled. I've always had this picture. If, she, if she's who she is, I don't think she minds. She's not following protocol, covering her head and all these things. And, and don't ask me where I got this, but I just see Jesus sitting there, and he, she knows he's the Messiah. And she takes off at a full gallop, heading into town. And he watches the dust flying off her feet and her hair in the wind, and he smiles. Because she knows the Messiah now. And he loves her. That's his daughter. That's my daughter. And she's going to spread the word. And I think the man of sorrow smiled. And if I'm off base, I'll take that. One more thing. We looked at this passage from Isaiah. It says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he's near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. And he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. Look at them all together. Look at the whole thing. We, we focus on, we say so many times, well, God's thoughts, my ways, you know, they're not like, so you don't know what God's thinking. Yes, we do. And this, in the context of what God was doing here, look at the whole thing together. Seek the Lord. Let, let the wicked one abandon his way. This is a plea to sinners to repent. And, and God sees there's fear in that. Oh, no, I'm a sinner and I know it, and God hates me, he's angry with me. And God says, no, I'm not like that. You don't, you don't think like me, and I don't think like you. You know what you deserve, but if you repent, I will have compassion on you, and I will freely forgive you. We need to think biblically about the lost. And that is thinking biblically about the lost. We need to love sinners like God does. So much that he sent his son to die for all those who would repent. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and, and the nastiest of the nasties. Let, let's face it, when we see people who are just not cleaned up like us, we tend to shake our heads or look down our nose. What's wrong with them? We, we see the, the gender stuff going on in our culture. We see the, the quote-unquote wisdom of the world and the people behind it. And our, our instinct in many situations is to get mad, or dislike them. The Bible talks about we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight powers and principalities. And again, they're blind. They are blind. And Jesus doesn't look at them that way. And we need to think biblically. He doesn't look at that, them that way. He loves them. He wants, he wants everyone to repent. He hates the sin Absolutely. And if you reject Christ, you will bear the wrath of God, really of Jesus. But we need to think the way he thinks. And we need to see these people the way Jesus sees these people. Share the gospel with the lost. I, I, will, I will close with this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, because that's important.
And if you're afraid to do that, here's the last thing Jesus said before he left. And as for you, behold, I'm always with you. I am always with you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross, first of all. And we thank you for the power of the cross that saved all of us who know you. There is no way that any of us can know if everyone in this room and everyone watching on the internet or listening does know you. You have told us to be light in a dark world. You have told us to be salt in the earth. God, forgive us when we look at people that don't look like us and we look down our noses. We don't have compassion for them. Forgive us for not being compassionate people. Forgive us for being self-righteous. Forgive us for not remembering who we were before you saved our souls. Forgive us for not remembering the sinful lives that we lived and loved before you awakened our dead spirits. God, forgive us for that. Turn us around. Open our eyes and God, open our hearts to the world around us, to the people that we just don't find very pretty to the people that really get on our nerves because of their sin, the people that we don't want to associate with because we would never do that. Give us the words and the actions and the wisdom to know what to do when we're around lost people to know what to say and give us a heart to love them as you do. We thank you again for the cross. I thank you for Jesus Christ and I thank you that you put him on a cross for me. God, send us on our way today with, with hearts for the lost with hearts for people, no matter what their background, their nationality, their situation, or anything, with a heart that looks at them and says, they know Jesus, where are they gonna spend eternity? With that kind of heart, so that we open our mouths and share you with them like someone did for us. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.